0: Revelation chapter 13, and we begin at verse number 1, we are still in that period of time known as the period of great tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel that he prophesied would come. We know it as the days of Jacob's trouble. We have designated it on the chart, and by the way, if you'd like a personal chart of the entire book of Revelation, they're on the table up front. You welcome to them, they're free. But on the chart we have that period denoted as the time of tribulation. That will be a period immediately following the rapture of the church. That is, the Bible speaks of a moment when Jesus will come in the clouds, will call out of this earth those who know him as Savior. The dead in Christ, those who are saved that have died, their bodies are now buried. The Bible says that they will rise first. And we which are alive and remain up at that moment will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. After that event transpires, which by the way is the very next event on God's prophetic calendar. That event could occur any moment. There is nothing remaining to be fulfilled for the rapture, the snatching away, the catching away of the body that is called the church in the New Testament. And by the term church, I do not mean a, 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 a denomination, but I mean overriding all denominational lines. Those who have been born again by the Spirit of God, those who are saved by the grace of God, those who have received Christ as their Savior. And so, after that moment, uh, 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 that moment, and that event, then will begin that period known as the Tribulation, a period that will last. Approximately seven years. You'll find that already in our studies of Revelation that the seven year period has a distinct, uh, distinct division of three and one half years to each division. The first three and a half years of the tribulation will go comparatively quiet and peacefully. But the last three and a half years things will turn altogether different. It will be the time of the most severe judgment and tragedy and wrath and disaster that has ever fallen upon this planet earth. And the Lord Jesus said himself in Matthew 24, "...except those days should be shortened, no flesh would be saved." In other words, it is the most dreadful time that this earth has or ever will experience. It is the time of the judgment of God upon this planet earth. Now then, we are in that period, as we come to chapter 13, in the, in the time of the tribulation, and we already we have seen numerous things, but here in chapter 13 we find what may be considered the beginning point of the latter part of the seven-year period, that is, the last three and one-half years. Some have designated this period as the first three and a half years, tribulation. The last three and a half years, the great tribulation. But it is all named and called simply the tribulation. Well, at verse 13, chapter 13 and verse 1, these words are found to say, and John is speaking and says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea. Now here he is in vision again as the Lord is unveiling to him events that are going to transpire. I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. Having seven heads and ten horns. And upon his horns ten crowns. And upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet was as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, as it were noticed, wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months, which totals out to three and one half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and overcome them. And power was given unto him over all kindreds and tongues and nations." And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Now here before us in both chapter 12 and chapter 13, we have what we could well call a divine comedy, a divine comedy. Now I do not mean by the word comedy what we usually associate with that, and that is something that is funny. For all that is written here is anything but funny. So we do not mean by the word divine comedy that that is funny, nor do we mean that it is a fictitious fictitious story, but rather instead of being fictitious, it is fact. That is fact that has been seen and prophesied long before the event ever will take place. Now the Bible is primarily a book of prophecy. Well, over two-thirds of the Bible is prophetic. Practically all of the utterances of the prophets, both, old, both major and minor prophets of the Old Testament, are words of prophecy. Much of their prophecy has to do with the nation of Israel. It has to do, indeed, with the birth of Messiah And all that the prophets declared in their prophecies about the birth of Messiah are accurate to the detailed, to the very pinpoint. The prophet prophesied where he would be born, prophesied how he would die. And Daniel, one of the prophets, even talks about when he is cut off and his people refuse him. All of the events in the life of Jesus and in the life of the nation of Israel are not events that surprise God. They are given to us, many, much of them, in prophetic utterances. Now that is not guesswork, for a man cannot guess one in twenty trillion the events to the point that these prophets have given. Indeed, it is evidence of the divine inspiration of the word of God. But here before us, I see what I would call a divine comedy. By the word comedy, I mean what the dictionary defines as a comedy, and that is a drama or other literary work with a happy ending. Now, what I've read to you here today has not much happiness in it, but there is a happy ending to this divine comedy. You will find the happy ending recorded in Revelation, beginning at chapter 19, and going down through the last chapter, chapter 22, where there you find the end of all that John has prophesied. So then here, we have a divine comedy. Now, every drama has a cast of characters, does it not? If you've ever gone to some of those school plays or even some drama that is performed in a theater or something, you've been handed a, a, a program, and in that program, there is the list of characters that will be seen and that are evident in that drama. Now, in chapter 12 and 13... There are primarily seven major characters around which this divine comedy revolves. And you'll find them if you'll look at your Bible very quickly, I'll point them out to you. Back in chapter 12 at verse 1 and 2, the first of the characters in this divine drama, the first of the characters is a woman. I'll not go into the description. I'm just simply wanting you to get acquainted with these. We've already talked about them in a previous message. But the woman here is a representation, or we might say is acted out by the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel. And that's who the woman signifies or typifies. In verse number 3 and 4, there is a second of these seven major characters, and he is presented on our program sheet as the dragon. We have understood, as our study last week, that here is a type, a a symbol of the enemy, Satan. Satan, the dragon, as he is identified in chapter 12. Also in chapter 12, verse 5 through 6, there's the third major character who is a kingly child. A kingly child, and he is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And then you'll find the fourth of the characters is in verse 7 through 12 of chapter 12 a warrior. Here is a warrior Michael the archangel. He is the warrior who stands, uh, who is the prince of the people of Israel. And then you'll find the fifth of the characters is uh, in this instance a victim. A victim. And we find discovered in verse number 13 through 17 that this victim in the cast of characters is the believing Jewish remnant. The believing Jewish remnant. uh, The Jewish remnant. And then in chapter 13 at verse 1 through 10, which we have just read, the sixth of the major characters is a ruling prince a ruling prince along with his very kingdom. And that one is identified as the Antichrist, the Antichrist, or as he is designated here, the beast. And then you'll find in verse 11 through 18 there is a prophet A prophet, one of the major characters, the seventh of the seven major characters, and he is identified and revealed as a false prophet. A false prophet who works, by the way, in close conjunction with the one world political leader, the Antichrist, This false prophet works in accord and brings about a worship of, by the peoples of the world, the beast, who is the one world ruler. And so the Bible is very clear in its cast of characters. Now, today we center our thoughts and our attention on this one, the ruler, the regent prince of Satan, the Antichrist. There are nine high points, if I could call them that, in these verses that we have read. And I want you to watch for them in this particular act of this divine comedy or this divine drama. Now today, we'll only look at perhaps three or maybe four of these particular acts in this scene of chapter 13. Uh, if I have time, maybe I can finish them tonight. But I don't want to. I don't want uh, to give you the whole wagon load this morning and break the wagon down. All right? Uh, is that agreeable? Uh, okay. If not, I'll preach till one o'clock. Uh, yeah, I knew you'd agree. It's agreeable. All right. First of all, I want you to consider this. Consider the anticipation of this one world ruler, this mighty prince. This head of a political union in the world. Now, the anticipation is spurred on as you go back as far as the book of Genesis, chapter 3 and verse 15. Where you will find the very first mention in that book of beginnings... Of this one who has been anticipated and will be anticipated by those who know what the scripture says. And I do not mean to suggest by the term anticipation that the child of God is looking for and with joy looking forward to the Antichrist. Not at all. As has well been said, I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for the Christ. He is the one I look for and has promised to come and gather me unto himself. But back in Genesis 3.15, turn there quickly and be reminded that here is our Lord as a result of man's sin, tempted through the serpent, Satan that entered into that serpent in the Garden of Eden and began to speak through him. And here is what the Lord says in chapter 3 at verse 15 of Genesis. And he says, and he's speaking to the serpent, to the devil, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and notice this, and between thy seed, talking about the seed of the serpent, thy seed and her seed. Now we know that the seed of the woman here is a prophecy of the seed of the born through Mary, our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what the reign of the verse says. It shall bruise or crush thy head. That is, the seed of a woman, the Christ, when he comes, he will crush thy head, and in the, in the, uh, in the very action of it, and thou, the seed of the serpent, Thou shalt bruise his heel. It is the idea of a serpent on the ground and a man coming seeing it and he puts his heel on the head of the serpent. The heel is bruised, but the head of the serpent is crushed. Now, head in the Bible is symbolic of power, authority and so forth, of rulership. And so here, the first uttered prophecy of what we're about to see in chapter 13 is revealed. Now, all of the Old Testament, I say all of them, many of the Old Testament prophets, I better say it like that, have anticipated the arrival of this one whom we call the Antichrist. He is designated by many different terms in the Scripture. Daniel talks about him in Daniel chapter 7. And I would that I had time to deal uh, simultaneously with Daniel's prophecy as well as what we're reading here. But I don't have the time to deal with it thoroughly. But I do want you to observe a few things that Daniel reveals to us. In Daniel 7, look at verse 23 and down through verse number 25. And I want to read this. Daniel is talking about the end time. And to make it simple, he is talking about the same period of time that I've mentioned previously, the period of, of tribulation upon this earth, that seven-year period when uh, these things will transpire. Now look at verse number 23. Now if you don't understand it all to begin with, just hang on. Thus he said, Daniel is seen in a vision a great, uh, he has seen uh, uh, the four great beasts, Now he focuses on the fourth. The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth. That is the fourth great world empire, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. In other words, he is talking about a worldwide domination. And the ten horns. Now, if you remember our text, John talks about this as well. And the ten horns out of his, out of this kingdom, are ten kings. Now, watch very carefully those words. The ten horns are out of this kingdom. Out of this kingdom, are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. Now, if he subdues three out of ten, at least seven. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of times. Now notice the period designated. Time, a year. Times, two years. And dividing of times, one half a year. So what you have here in Daniel is the same thing you have in Revelation 13 where John talks about 42 months or three and one half years. Do you see that? All right, then follow very carefully. Here Daniel has talked about this diverse king that will rise up. And it is a reference to the one whom we're reading about in Revelation 13, another vision that God gives another servant of his and they correspond, they are in sympathy, they're in accord one with the other. Let me just mention another designation or so and I'll just give you the reference, won't take time to turn there but if you're following me in this, jot them down. Uh, Also Daniel calls this same beast that John sees rising out of the sea. He calls him the prince. You'll find him talking about him in Daniel 9 verse 26 and 27. You jump over to the New Testament and you hear Paul referring to the same personage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3 down through verse 8. And here, Paul calls him the man of sin. He may call him also the son of perdition. Also in Daniel, back to Daniel, chapter 8, verse 23, Daniel describes him in Daniel 8, 23 as the king of fierce countenance. The king of fierce countenance. In Daniel 11, verse 21, He refers to him again, and he designates him as the vile person, the vile person. And Jesus referred to him as well, and he did it like this. In John chapter five, verse 43, John five, verse 43, Jesus is speaking, and he says to the religious leaders of Israel who had rejected him, he says this, I am come in my father's name And you receive me not. now watch. If another, and the word another means of a different kind, another of a diverse kind shall come in his own name, him you will receive. Now according to the prophetic utterances of the word of God, there is coming a day when Israel as a people will bow before this one who is not of God but who comes as an imitator of their Messiah and Israel bows in worship of him. They have rejected the truth and now they will bow before the lie. And the Antichrist is referred to as indeed the lie. Again, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, referred to as the lie. They have rejected the truth, Paul says, so they will believe the lie. Believe the lie. And then in Revelation 6, verse 2, we were first introduced to this one, this world ruler. And he is seen riding on a white horse in John's vision. He is seen having a bowl. Look in chapter six, verse two, "But he has no arrow." In other words, the picture is, here is this great ruler coming in the semblance of the day, a king upon a white horse. He comes with a bow, but he has no weapon, saying that he comes preaching peace. Peace, peace. But you find after his initial introduction. That after three and one half years, watch this, he renounces the covenant that he has made with the people and nation of Israel. Now listen to me. Daniel said in chapter 9 verse 27 that this one will come and make a covenant with the nation and people of Israel. He will assure them their protection and safety. Now, could you, know, could you think of anything that the present nation of Israel would delight in any more than someone who would say to them, we are going to assure you of peace and safety. Would you not believe that the Middle East today would accept such a personage if he came and offered the sure solution for the conflict between the Arabs and the Jews? I guarantee you, and I want to tell you folks, listen to me, and I've said it over and again. What is happening today in the Middle East, and I'm not just talking about Iraq, but what is happening in the Middle East between the Arabs and the Jews has been something that has been prophesied from centuries and centuries ago. But the Bible also says that one will come and give them a covenant and also in that covenant, what's this. He will give them the right to restore their former way of worship. They will be granted the privilege of rebuilding their temple. Now if you're keeping up with current events, you know there's nothing more touchy than the question of Mount Moriah or the Temple Mount We've recently read so much and heard so much about it. And the rumor was that brought about, so-called, so, so so the Palestinians say, the reason they came throwing rocks at those Jewish worshippers was that they had heard they were coming to lay the cornerstone of their temple. Now I want to tell you something, folks. I'm, I, I'm not reading out of a funny book. You need to understand that God's trying to say to you and me today, you better wake up, you better become alert, and if you're not saved, you need to get saved. If you do not know Christ, you need to know him, for these things are fast coming to pass. Now, the Antichrist is going to give them a covenant, and he'll say, I promise you safety. The Arab-Israeli problem is going to be settled, apparently. And he'll say, you can rebuild your temple, and you can come again with your worship, the sacrifices of old. You can restore that form of worship. But here's the hitch. In the middle of the covenant of seven years that that beast offers Israel, Daniel 9.27 says, In the midst of the week, he will break his covenant he will turn on israel as already we've seen in chapter 12 with such fury and such wrath and such indignation as it will appear the nation of israel will be obliterated israel has been the scapegoat of men for centuries but i'll tell you something though she has suffered like a burning bush she is not consumed do you know why God has a place and a purpose for the nation of Israel in his program. And I will tell you, I don't care what Hitlers of the past, what Stalins have done in the past, what men have done in the past to destroy the Jew, he is indestructible. Now, I don't mean by that, buddy, he don't suffer. He suffered much. Hitler tried to wipe him out by his final solution. And you know what's all behind it? We saw last Sunday in chapter 12, the whole thing behind it is that old dragon, the devil, who with hatred of Jesus Christ, through whom our, this Savior came, through the nation, the people of Israel, and the devil's hated Israel ever since. Not only of that, but because of what God will do through them in the future. The Lord said way back when Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldees, I will make thee a blessing. You will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And the devil's tried to pervert that and twist that and make them a curse, but God said you're going to be a blessing And all these days in the future reign of our Lord, reigning from David's throne in Israel after the flesh, the book of Acts says, not a spiritual reign. Oh, yes, he reigns in my heart and yours now if you receive Him as Savior. But friend, there's coming a day when he shall reign on the throne of David after the flesh. God said it and he'll see to it. It's done. Again then. I've I've spent too much time there, but nonetheless, the anticipation, it's all through the scripture. Notice, if you will, verse 1, the arrival of this one world ruler and leader. John here has a view from the beach. You see this? John's view from the beach. Now, I've always enjoyed walking on the beach. I like to see the waves, like to watch things. There's something peaceful about it. But Bud, if you'd have been with John when he is standing on the beach and saw what he saw, I don't think you'd ever want to go back to the beach. What John saw was an awesome, monstrous thing in his vision. He sees a beast rising up out of the sea. And he sees upon him seven heads. He sees ten horns. He sees ten crowns upon that one. He sees an awesome sight, but as is the book of Revelation, he gives these things in symbol and sign, and they are representative of indeed other things. And that's what we need to understand. Now there are two things in this statement. A beast rise up. He saw a beast rise up out of the sea. And this is all the time I have this morning. Let me just share this, and then we'll get back to it uh, in our next message. Two things. Notice the beast and the sea. Notice, if you will, the sea from whence this beast arises. Now, the Bible is full of symbolism. There is much that is to be taken literal in the Bible. But often you'll find, especially in the book of Revelation, the Lord uses signs or symbols, and He'll always uh, inform you of that, as He says, as it were, as it were. And so forth. So John is still in this vision. And now he sees the beast rise up out of the sea. Now the sea is symbolic. I go back to the book of Isaiah. For example in chapter 57. Verse 20 and 21. You'll find that as you compare scripture with scripture. The thing begins to unfold. And it literally explains itself. So here watch this. Isaiah 57 verse 20 and 21. Here the prophet Isaiah. Compares the wicked that is, the unregenerate world, the Christ-rejecting mass of mankind, he compares the wicked to, quote, the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt, there is no peace saith my God to the wicked. Now here he is picturing the the very condition of Christ-rejecting men. The sea, when you look at it, is constantly in motion. The waves beating up against the breakers and the the beach and so forth. And then often when the storm brews out there in the waters, the waters become even more turbulent. So what John is showing us here is this. He is showing us a sea of mankind, as it were, restless and troubled, and in a restless and troublesome time, from which this beast or this one world ruler will arise. Now, that pattern has been set in history over and over again. When the mass of society becomes disorganized, it is a ripe right picking for a tyrant or a dictator. In other words, the beast is going to rise... When the world is in a period of political, economic, and world disorder, He will come with a promise of the answer and the solution to the problems that existed in the world at that time. I will tell you this: You are know your history. When Adolf Hitler became the dictator, the tyrant of the peoples of Germany and much of Europe but especially Germany, the time was ripe for Hitler to rise to power. In other words, in the time of Hitler's rise, the condition in Germany was financially, economically, low in gold reserves. Their budget was totally unbalanced. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? (laughs) Inflation ran wild. In that particular period, the middle class of the peoples of Germany had lost all of their savings. They had no pensions upon which to rely. They indeed uh, were in a state of economic ruin and political disorder. So when a fellow like Adolf Hitler comes wise as he was but I believe demon inspired and possessed saw the advantage that was his and begin to push and begin first to blame the jew for the condition satanically inspired and then begin to take advantage and as a result of Hitler's rise you know what happened Germany begun to f- uh, flourish economically again. And the people, as a result of Hitler's rise to power, said, He is our savior. And they went about h- crying, h- uh, seek Heil, seek Heil. He, in other words, they were saying, He is our Savior. He is our Savior. He is our Messiah. He is our redeemer. We'll tell you what he's doing as well. He called his reign the Third Reich. Literally, Hitler kept by his bedside a book entitled The Prince. A man had written, Machiavelli, if I remember his name, had written that book many, many years prior. But it was a book that Hitler followed and was inspired by that gave him the ability to rise to power. Mussolini of Italy also relied on the same book, kept it by his side. In other words, uh, they saw a ripe opportunity. Lenin said, the founder of communism, and I give you his quote, the surest way to overthrow an existing social order is to debauch the currency. In other words, when you hit a society in its pocketbook, and you'll come along and promise some money in their pocketbook, They're going to say, buddy, you're our man. We want you. And so the time of the rise of the beast is going to be a time of political, economic unrest and world disorder. Right now, if you've got your eyes open, our world, ladies and gentlemen, is in a mess. We can't put out one fire before another one breaks out. We can't solve one coup or disorder or revolution until one, two, or a half a dozen break out. Our politicians are pulling their hair out almost literally because of the problems that we are stumped with in this country. Our economic security is very fragile in America itself. And the whole story is all of this is working about even as the prophets had declared for a time to be ripe when a man will rise with the solution. The Middle East is a powder keg. And if somebody could come on the scene and say hey I've got the answer and it could work out not only in paper and word but in reality the world would literally bow at his feet and say you are our leader. Our Messiah, our Savior. So the sea is symbolic of a restless, disorganized mass of humanity. I'll close with a mention of the beast only briefly. The term is used some 20 times in the book of Revelation, the word beast. There are two words that are translated beast in the original language of the Greek New Testament. If you were to look back in Revelation chapter 4 and look at verse number 6, 7, and 8, you would see in chapter 4 a scene in heaven. It is a worship scene, and they are bowing before the throne of God in adoration and worship, and all of a sudden you find John saying something about four beasts who were now in the act of worshiping before the throne of God, and they were crying, holy, holy, holy. It was true worship, the word beast. However, the word here comes from the word zoon, spelled like, well, z-o-o-n in English, along o zone. It comes from the word zoe, from which we get our word for life, uh, particularly animal life. We get our word zoology from this word. It is the study of life. And so here the word translated our English language, beast in Revelation 4, 6, 7, and 8, is simply a word that denotes a living being. And if you remember when we came to Revelation 4 some weeks back, I translated the word as simply living creatures. The emphasis in that word is simply stressing life as the characteristic feature of that being. So it is the word zone in Revelation 4. And it refers primarily to the living creatures before the throne who worship God in truth and in holiness. But we come to Revelation 13 at verse 1. And this all I have time for explain this and then we'll have to close. In Revelation 13, 1, it is not zoom, translated here, beast. It is the word therion, and it is translated beast. Now, you don't have to try to remember those words. I wouldn't know them if I didn't write them down. But the whole story is the word, what don't you see is this. It's translated in our English language, beast, but it is a word that denotes a wild beast. A wild creature. In Acts chapter 28 and verse 4, you'll remember this. Paul was warming himself by fire in Acts 28. And a viper latched on to him. The viper was a venomous creature. It was a poisonous serpent. The word Therion Is the word that is translated there. That viper or venomous serpent. So here in the choice of this word. And again you see the genius of Holy Spirit inspiration of the Bible. you find here that this word is expressive of the character of the world ruler the Antichrist. At his heart in his true character. He is a venomous creature. He comes. Seeking peace, but war is in his heart. He comes with with suaveness, appeal, personality, and people are awed in his presence. But in his heart there is hatred and viciousness and venom seeking to destroy. So here you find an accurate outward description of the Antichrist. Now tonight if I have time I'll deal with the appearance of this beast and we'll go back to Daniel chapter 7 and I want to show you some things tonight briefly and it'll have to be brief tonight. I want to show you what Daniel is talking about, the rise of this beast, which is the rise of not only a person but a kingdom. And you're going to be amazed when you look back centuries before Jesus Christ was ever born. And here an old prophet by the name of Daniel outlined world empires, one that would follow the other. Until he comes to a kingdom that will be made up, And listen to this, in the last days of ten kings. Those ten kings will form what we know today and in history as the old Roman Empire. I'll show you where I get that tonight. Today I believe, and I'll give you this, the forerunner of that revived kingdom is the European common market. The United States of Europe. Now listen to me, and if you'll follow it, do you realize that that's what Hitler sought to do? Do you realize Napoleon sought to do the same thing, revive that old empire? Bismarck did the same thing. Kaiser Wilhelm, same desire. But all of these men tried to put the old Roman empire back together again. And a poet wrote a a little line that came out of the frustration of the leaders of the world to try to revive that old empire in their day. And do you know what the little rhyme is? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. But ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. According to the Bible you have in your hand, that kingdom's gonna be put back together again. It won't be by the efforts of men of the past, but by one of the most ingenious men to ever live and come out of humanity. It will be put together and be ruled by this one whom John says is the beast. Let's stand for prayer together.